I would ask you to open your Bibles up to John chapter 9, the Gospel of John chapter 9. In just a few moments, we're going to be looking there at a passage of Scripture, actually a narrative, a story that is recorded for us by the Gospel writer, one of the disciples of Jesus Christ, the Apostle John. So if you'll find your place there, as you're turning your Bibles there, let me just share with you a little bit about what's going to be happening in the next several weeks. If you've not been with us on Sunday mornings, we as a church have started a 52-week chronological Bible reading plan. Uh, And I encourage you, if you have not gotten one of those plans, you can pick one up on the table. And as you go out the doors of the worship center this morning, there'll be one there. Or you can go to our website, www.crestwoodbc.com and when the page comes up you will see a picture of the 52-week chronological Bible reading plan. If you click on it, it will carry you to a link and you can download the plan there. Also, I hope that this morning in your small group Bible study time that you studied the life of Job. One of the aspects of our reading plan is connecting our reading to what we are studying in our small group Bible studies on Sunday morning. And so what we have done is we have selected a story from that Bible reading plan that we will focus on each Sunday. This Sunday was the life of Job. That's the reason I shared with you some of the story of the life of Job at the very beginning of our worship service. Now, next Sunday morning is going to be a little bit different because there is another aspect of our 52-week Bible reading plan that we've been looking at. Next Sunday morning, I'm going to be preaching on 40 different chapters in the Bible. Uh, Yeah, I saw the look on some of your face. Some people are excited, some are a little bit more reserved, and some are shocked, you know, and so... We won't try to cover all 40 of those chapters. We'll probably focus on a certain attribute or some part of the nature of God or one of the stories that are found in our reading for the week. That is part of our Bible reading plan. And also, we are going to be saying together our verse of Scripture that we have memorized, right? Amen? Yeah, I see some people that are excited, others that are not quite as excited. We're going to come together and we're going to share that. Let me share with you what I have done that has really helped me, if I can find it in my Bible here. Who knows, I may have lost it by now, but I didn't. I have written the verse of Scripture that we are memorizing down on a 3 by 5 card, so every day when I read my Bible, that card is in the place where I will be reading next. And then it enables me to go over that verse of Scripture on a daily basis, keep it fresh in my mind and in my heart. I am a firm believer that we need to hide the Word of God in our heart that we may not sin against God. Now, this first verse that we're going to quote together next Sunday morning, I kind of gave you a Sunday school verse. It's one we all know, we've already memorized. It is Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. In unison next week, we're going to stand to our feet, and we are going to quote that verse together, right? Amen? Yeah, all right. Some are excited. I'm looking forward to that. And I will be checking roll next Sunday to make sure everybody is quoting that verse. I may be walking up and down the aisles. I'm only joking with you. I won't do any of that. But this is what I want you to know. I am your greatest cheerleader in this. I really want to encourage 
encourage you to get into the Word of God. I believe that there is a power in the Word of God. It is powerful and living, and it has the ability to change our lives. But if we never get into the Word and we never hide God's Word in our heart, we'll be susceptible to every false belief that comes along. We'll be led astray very easily by the enemy. The enemy hates truth. He is the father of all lies, and he will try to deceive you over and over again. And sometimes he takes the Word of God and twists it in such a manner to deceive God's people. That's the reason why we are encouraging you as families each week in your home to sit down around the Word of God, break it out, read the Word of God together. It's two verses. My family and I are having a great time. So no matter where you find yourself, if you're a single, if you're married, no children, if you're empty nest, if you're married with 10 children, wherever you find yourself at, I want to encourage you to get into the Word of God. Open up the Word of God. Let it refresh your soul. Let it feed you is what I want to encourage you to do. All right, so have you found your places there? John chapter 9 is the passage of Scripture that we're looking at. We've been walking through the Gospel of John on Sunday morning, verse by verse. We've entitled this series of sermons, Getting to Know Jesus, Believe, and Live. That was God, or that was John's desire for his readers. As a matter of fact, at the end in chapter 21 of the Gospel of John, John says, I have written this book for this reason, for this purpose, that you might believe on Jesus Christ. When we first started our study in the Gospel of John, I shared with you the Gospel of John is the most different of all of the Gospels that are recorded for us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke very closely resemble one another. They share many of the same stories. And each one of those authors of those books under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit choose to focus on the work of God here on earth. That's important for us, isn't it? That we would understand the work of God. Well, John does something a little bit different, doesn't he? John doesn't choose to focus on the works of Jesus Christ. John chooses to focus on who Jesus is, who he is. I shared with you in the Gospel of John, there are a number of series of sevens that you will see. One of those series of seven is seven different signs that Jesus Christ performed that pointed to something greater. They were miracles, and through each one of those miracles, Jesus Christ is wanting to teach us something significant. A spiritual truth is what Jesus is wanting to do. Now, if you were here on last Sunday, I was not with you. I missed you, but we are glad to be back with you. I was preaching homecoming in Enon Baptist Church, just north of Chester. Had a great time. But Brother Travis walked through or walked with you through the end of chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. I passed by about 9.30. I almost stopped in 
Then I thought better of it. I said, they're finished by now. Brother Travis, they probably were done at 9 o'clock. They're on their way home. So I said, I'm not going to stop in. I'm just going to pass on by. But I want you to hear how the end of chapter 8 finishes. Because how the chapter ends is our context for how chapter 9 opens. I want you to listen to this. So they picked up stones to throw at him. That's Jesus. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It is out of that context that chapter 9 begins. You see, sometimes I think we have the wrong image, the wrong picture of the temple. The temple was a huge complex. And sometimes in the Word of God, the word temple refers to all of the complex of the temple. And sometimes it simply refers to the building proper, the actual place where they went to worship. But the temple set at the highest elevation in the city. It was massive with a number of different gates that allowed you access to it. So last week when John tells us, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ hid himself and went outside of the temple, he wasn't referring to the temple complex as a whole. He was referring to the temple proper, just the building where the Holy of Holies was located. Jesus Christ one way or another, miraculously hides himself from the crowd. They have picked up rocks. They want to stone him to death because he has claimed to be God in the human flesh. That was blaspheming in the eyes of the Jewish people. Jesus has made that claim. As a result of that claim, they're getting ready to stone him to death. Somehow or another, the eyes of the people are blinded. Jesus walks out of the temple into the temple crowd. And you could see how easy it would be for him to be lost in the middle of a great crowd. There's a great crowd of people. There was always a great crowd of people at the temple. It was the central place, the central location of worship in Jerusalem. That's why people came to Jerusalem, was to go up to the temple to offer sacrifices to worship the one true living God. Now, we don't know exactly where this story takes place. Perhaps it's in the court of Gentiles, oftentimes people would come there and they would place themselves, place themselves in a position in a main thoroughfare where people would walk back and forth and they could beg for alms. Perhaps it's at one of the temple gates and as Jesus Christ is going out of the temple gate, maybe he comes into contact with this man. We're not real certain. But we do know this, and this is so very important in this text. Don't miss it. It's subtle, and if you read over the top of it, you'll miss the intent of this story. This is what it says. Jesus came into contact with a man who was blind from birth. Blind from birth. That's the context. I would say to you this morning that the context 
of the entirety of this chapter is not physical blindness in the healing that takes place in this man's life. The context of the entirety of this passage is about spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. If you have your Bibles there with me this morning, I want us to begin reading right here. How many of you have ever heard that old expression, here is mud in your eye? Have you ever heard that expression? You've heard that expression before? We have, do you realize there are people who believe that that expression finds its origins in this passage of Scripture? You'll understand in just a moment why that is. Now listen to what it says here. Chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in his life. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, that is Jesus Christ, and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, there's that saying, here's mud in your eye. That's where it comes from, some people believe. And said to him, go Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They They brought to the Pharisee the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisee again asked him, How had he received his sight? And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such Now see it here, signs. You see, the signs point to something greater. The signs that Jesus Christ performed in the Gospel of John point to who Jesus Christ was. He was the Messiah. What does the Word of God say when the Messiah comes? Those who are blind will receive their sight. 
Do you see the sign? It points to who Jesus Christ is. And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said, He is a prophet. Let's pray this morning. Father God, we just want to pause for a moment and thank you for the reading of your word. Your word is powerful and living and is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Father, I trust this morning as we open your word that you will speak truth into our lives. Give us an open heart, an open mind to receive what it is that you would have us to receive today. And Father, I pray that you would just hide me behind the cross of Jesus Christ, that people would not see me or hear my words, but they would hear the truth of your word proclaimed, that they would see Jesus Christ high and lifted up, because Jesus says, if he be lifted up, he will draw men unto him. Guide our thoughts and direct us, Lord, now through your Holy Spirit. Father, help us not to simply be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In several weeks, we're going to come back to this passage of Scripture. And when we look at this passage of Scripture several Sundays from now, we're going to focus our attention upon spiritual blindness. We're going to look at what Jesus Christ is trying to teach us in this passage of Scripture about being spiritually blind. But for the purpose of our time together this morning, what I really want to do is offer you some lessons that we see from this passage of Scripture, some lessons that will help us in our relationship as followers of Jesus Christ. I want to offer you this morning four lessons that we learn from these 17 verses that I read to you earlier. If you're taking notes this morning, this is the first lesson that you will want to write down. Jesus Christ corrects the false belief that suffering is payback for a specific sin. Let me say it one more time. Jesus Christ corrects the false belief that suffering is payback for a specific sin. Let me ask you a question. Aren't we all guilty of believing that at some point in time? Yeah, we are. How many times have you ever looked at a person and you look at their life and you draw the conclusion, you know what? They wouldn't be going through everything that they're experiencing in life. They wouldn't be going through all of the suffering that is happening in their life if they chose to live a different life than what they're living. If they would only choose to live their life for the Lord, they wouldn't experience all that they are experiencing right now in their life. Am I the only one that's ever been guilty of making that statement about someone? Or much more than this, am I the only one that has ever been guilty of thinking that in my heart and mind? 
Now, don't look at me like that, like I'm the only one. I know at some point in time, we've all looked at the lives of other people, and we have drawn the conclusion in life, oh, my goodness, if they would choose to live a much different life, if they would choose to live a life unto the Lord, if they would only follow Jesus Christ, they wouldn't be experiencing everything that is going on in life right now. Aren't we all guilty of that? I would say that we're all guilty of that at some point in time. And that was surely true of the apostles in this story. As a matter of fact, this was a belief of the Jewish people in the first century. Did you hear the question that the apostles posed to Jesus Christ? Hey, Jesus Christ, who's at fault here? This man or his parents? Jesus, which one of them sinned that has caused this man's problem in life? But did you hear how Jesus Christ responded to them in this story? Jesus Christ dispels that false belief. He says, it's not the fault of the man or his parents, the condition that he has. Rather, it is for the glory of God that this man has been blinded from the time he was born. Now, I think we need to be careful here. It would be easy for us to draw the conclusion from the words of Jesus Christ that somehow God made this man blind so that Jesus Christ could perform the miracle and as a result of that, God would receive the glory. But I would tell you that is not true and that is not what we learn in Scripture. God does not cause suffering. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, evil entered into the world. And as a result of that choice, our world that we live in on a daily, a daily basis experiences pain, disease, sickness, death, and suffering on a regular basis. I would submit to you this morning at some point in life, every single person's life will be visited by Suffering. Let me see a show of the hands of the number of people here that's never experienced any suffering in life. Good. I just wanted to make sure we were all together this morning. Listen, suffering is indiscriminate. Suffering will visit every single person's life at some point or another. Suffering entered into the world, not because of one specific sin, but because of sin in general. We very clearly see that. Now, at the same time, I want to be careful here. I want to be very careful because surely there are consequences for sin. Isn't that true? Yeah. And sometimes we can exacerbate the suffering in our life by the choices that we make. Isn't that true? Surely there are consequences to sin in all of our lives. But what I want you to notice in this story, more than anything else, is this. Suffering is not caused by God, 
but he can use it to draw us closer to him and bring glory to his name if we will only permit him to. Perhaps there's no better illustration of this than the life of Job. When you examine the life of Job, it is easy to walk away and say this, this man didn't deserve anything that he had coming to him. Think about it. Blameless, righteous, shunned evil, worshiped the one true living God. And do you know what? Suffering still visited Job's life. We say this this morning. I don't know all that you are going on, what's going on in your life right now. I don't know what challenges you may be facing in life. Perhaps you've lost someone that is very dear and near to your heart. Maybe you're experiencing hardship in a marriage. Maybe you've experienced the waywardness of a child. Maybe you're suffering at the place that you work at and you're facing persecution on a regular basis. The reality of the world that we live in is this. There is suffering. But I want you to clearly hear me say this. As followers of Jesus Christ, if we will look to the Heavenly Father, He can take the suffering in our life and He can work it to His good. He can bring honor and glory to His name if we will only allow Him to do it. That is very clear in this passage. Jesus Christ starts by correcting the false belief that suffering is payback for a specific sin. Lesson number two. Lesson number two. Before we met Jesus, we were all blind. Before we met Jesus, we were all blind. Not physically blind. Spiritually blind. Now, I'm not going to elaborate a lot on this particular lesson and the reason is, is because in several weeks we're going to come back and we're going to talk about what Jesus Christ teaches here in this story about spiritual blindness. But you heard me make this, you heard me make this statement earlier today, and I don't want us to forget this. Behind every miracle Jesus performs, there is always a spiritual lesson that he is teaching. And that was surely true of this miracle. Can I submit to you this morning, this man's greatest need in life was not to see physically. This man's greatest need in life was to have his eyes spiritually opened. Number three, Jesus deals with each one of us in his own unique way. Jesus chooses to deal with each one of us in his own unique way. This is what is a unique. If you were to go back to the Gospel of Matthew, 
and you were began to read in the Gospel of Matthew, you would see on more than one occasion that Jesus Christ heals blind people. As a matter of fact, in Matthew, the ninth chapter, Jesus Christ heals two men who are blind. In Mark, the eighth chapter, again, Jesus Christ heals a man who is blind. And then here in this passage, John chapter 9, Jesus Christ chooses to heal another man who is spiritual, I mean, who is physically blind. Now, at the same time, if you took out a notebook and you made notes about each one of those accounts as you read them, you would realize something. Each one of those accounts are very unique. Each time Jesus Christ heals men or a man who is blind, he chooses to do it in a different way. In the first account with the two men, Jesus Christ simply touches their eyes and their sight is restored. In the second account, in Mark the ninth chapter, Jesus Christ takes the man outside of the town. And listen, I, I realize this is hard, but this is what he does. He spits in the man's eyes. That's what Scripture says. He literally spits in the man's, eye, in the man's eyes. And then he touches them, his eyes, and they receive their sight. Here in this story, Jesus Christ bends down. He spits on the ground. My wife would not be very happy with Jesus. She always tells my son, we are not running around spitting. But Jesus spits on the ground. And then he stirs it, obviously, with his finger. He picks up the mud from his saliva. He anoints the man's eyes. Literally, he rubs it into his eyes tells the man, now go down to the pool of Siloam and I want you to wash your eyes and when you wash your eyes there, you will receive your sight is what he says to this man. Three different times Jesus Christ chooses to heal a man who is blind and each time it is very unique, it is very different. And when I read these stories, the question I always ask myself is this, what was Jesus doing? Don't you, think it, don't you think that's a valid question to ask? Three different healings, each time he does it completely different. Now we know that Jesus Christ could have just spoke, right? And the man would have been healed. He could have just said, see. Remember the story of the Roman ruler who comes to Jesus whose son is sick? And what does Jesus say to the man? Your son is healed. He speaks. At that very moment, the son who is not even present is healed. Jesus Christ could have spoke, and this man could have been healed. But he chooses not to do that. You know why? Because physical blindness in the New Testament is an illustration of spiritual blindness. And this is the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us. That he deals with each person in his own unique way. 
Now, let me say this because I don't want you to draw the wrong conclusion. There is only one way by which men can be healed. I mean, there's only one way by which men can be saved. There is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. There is only one way that a person can be saved, and that is by trusting in Jesus Christ, the Lord who saves. That is very clear to us in Scripture. But I would be willing to say, if I asked you to stand up this morning, and I went around this room, and I had each one of you share your salvation experience of how you met Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would say each one of them would look very, very different, would they not? How many of you had a Damascus Road experience where God spoke to you out of a light? Did you have that one? I have not had that one. I want you to be aware of that. But there is a man in the Bible who had that. Let me illustrate it to you in in this way. I think this is the best illustration that I can think of when I think of the fact that Jesus Christ chooses to deal with each one of us in a specific way. It's like with my three children when they each came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I remember when Hadassah came to know Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. She was more contemplative, more somber. She had heard the gospel a number of different times, and there was one point in time in her life where she came to say, I know I need Jesus to be my Savior. With my middle daughter, Zoe, it was much different. We went to a revival. Zoe wakes up at 10 o'clock at night. She is sobbing. She is bawling like a two-year-old. Daddy, I need Jesus Christ in my heart. And then, of course, there's the son. A little tougher nut to crack. Just a little bit different. He had heard the gospel a number of different times. And we had shared with him the gospel. One day, standing in the kitchen, if there's anything good that can come out of three kids, standing in the kitchen, doing dishes together, it is this. One of his sisters looked and said, Hey, why aren't you a Christian yet? Why haven't you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Levi comes to me and says, Daddy, I know it is time. I need to know Jesus Christ. I walked him through the plan of salvation. He chose to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And for days after that, his heart was filled with joy. He just went around sharing with everyone about how he had come to know Jesus Christ. Now let me say something. Three very different experiences, none of them any less saved than the other one. Do you see what I'm saying? You see, this is what I tell people all the time. I tell people all the time, what is most important in life is knowing you are saved. We get ourselves in a lot of trouble when we want to make everyone else's experience just like mine. Now, there's people that want to do that. I've met those people. And they'll tell you if your experience doesn't sound exactly like their experience, then your experience has been wrong. But I would say this. Jesus Christ deals with each one of us in a very unique way. And I'm grateful that he does. Number four, and the last one, number four. The fourth lesson we learn in this story is this. Obedience always leads to joy. 
Let me say that one more time. Because I believe we remove this from salvation. Now, understand when I make that statement, I'm not saying that we are saved by obedience. But what I am saying is, obedience is evidence that you have truly been saved. All right? Obedience leads to joy. I want you to think about this story for a moment. I want you to put yourself into this passage of Scripture. Can you imagine for a moment the sense of joy that this man experienced when he received his sight? Get it. Blind from birth. Has lived in total darkness all of his life. We don't know the exact age of the man. I would say he's at least in his 20s, if not much older than that. Maybe in his 30s or 40s. We're not given that information in this text. But I can say this. He was blind from birth. It is very clear. He had never seen the light of day. He had walked in total darkness all of his life. And all of a sudden, he's healed. He's healed and he sees something for the very first time. Can you imagine the sense of joy that this man experienced in his life. You know, we're at kind of a disadvantage in this story. And you know why we're at a disadvantage? We're not given all of the information, all of the finer details surrounding this story. Some of what is taking place here is lost on us. And the reason is, we don't have all of the lay of the land. But, we do know this, that this miracle takes place on the temple mount after Jesus Christ has come out of the temple proper. He meets this man, whether it be at a gate or in the court of Gentiles, we're not certain. But at that moment in time, this man, or Jesus Christ, squats down, he spits in the dirt, he stirs it up, and he makes mud out of it. And then, get this, because in the Greek it is so important, he takes that mud and he rubs it into the man's eyes. Can you imagine how irritating that must have been? Sand, gravel, stones, Jesus Christ has just taken it, he has rubbed it in his eyes. And then he looks at the man after irritating his eyes. There's been a few times in life where I've had something stuck in my eye and I remember how irritating it was. Jesus has just taken a handful of mud, has applied it to this man's eyes and rubbed it in it. Then he looks at this man who is blind and he makes this statement to him. I want you to go down to the pool of Siloam. Down to the pool of Siloam. It was a steep embankment. 20-minute walk away, Jesus Christ has just told this. Another finer point that is missed in this story is this. Along the way, he would have passed six other pools. He could have stopped at any of those and washed his eyes out. Jesus Christ says, no. You go. 20 minutes. A blind man. 
eyes full of sand and dirt. I want you to go 20 minutes down this steep embankment to the pool of Siloam, and I want you to wash there. And then there's recorded for us in this text that this man returns back the 20 minutes up to the Temple Mount again. And he is filled with joy. Do you want to know why? He's filled with joy because he was obedient. Now listen, this is so very important. Obedience always leads to great joy in the life of the believer. If this man hadn't obeyed Jesus Christ and washed in the pool of Siloam, he would have never known the joy of being healed. However, he experiences that joy because he chose to walk in obedience before the Lord. Let me say this this morning. If you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you are experiencing no joy in your relationship with Jesus Christ, I would start by asking myself the question, am I walking in obedience before the Lord Jesus Christ? Obedience always brings joy in the life of the believer. As many of you know, I grew up in church. My father was a pastor. I spent a number of years pastoring. I didn't always appreciate all of the old hymns that we find in our hymn book. As a matter of fact, there was a time in my life where I didn't really think they had a lot of value in my life. As I've gotten older and as I've gotten a little wiser in time, I've come to realize that the hymns that we sing out of our hymn books teach us a whole lot about who God is and what Jesus Christ desires of our life. As a matter of fact, over the last several years in churches, there has been a revival of the old, old hymns. And the reason being, there is a generation of Christians that are coming up that are fed up with the shallowness of Christianity. And what they're saying is, I want to go deeper in my relationship with the Lord. I want to know more about who He is. Well, one of the writers of some of the hymns that we sing in our hymn book is a man that wrote over 200 hymns. The vast majority of those hymns have to deal with experiencing joy in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to hear the first verse of one of the hymns that he wrote. Just listen to it carefully. 
when we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word. What a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus except to trust and obey. You see, there are people out there this morning that want you to believe that happiness comes from you running off somewhere to some conference for the weekend and getting spiritually renewed. Or they want to tell you what you need to do is to find a church that will cater to what you want in life and you'll be happy in life. And the Bible declares that happiness comes from walking in obedience to the Lord, trusting Him, not from doing those things. Do you see what I'm saying? Can I submit to you this morning? We have bought into a lie of the enemy. That's what we have done. Trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Let me ask you a question this morning, believer. Are you experiencing true joy, happiness in life? If you're not experiencing true joy and happiness in life this morning, maybe you need to start with this question. Am I truly walking in obedience with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Trust and obey, for there is no other way. Did you see that? No other way. To be happy in Jesus except to trust and obey. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning, the way it speaks into our hearts and our lives. Father, you have given us the opportunity this morning to respond to you. Father, I pray during this time of invitation that we will take the opportunity to examine our hearts and our lives to see where we are in relationship with you. Father, my prayer is is we'll give the Holy Spirit the freedom to do whatever He wants to do in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.